I'm a very private person in prayer, and so it's hard for me to lead a prayer. So instead, I'm going to read a very ancient one that's one of my favorites and was an inspiration for me when the towers came down. If there is to be peace in the world, there must be peace in the nations. If there is to be peace in the nations, there must be peace in the cities. If there is to be peace in the cities, there must be peace between neighbors. If there is peace between neighbors, there must be peace in the home. If there is to be peace in the home, there must be peace in our children's hearts. Our reading this morning is a modern reading that quotes an ancient text, the words of Elaine Pagels in 1995, written in the Introduction to Living Buddha, Living Christ. Thick, not Han. In 1947, a Bedouin villager was digging for bird lime fertilizer under a cliff in Upper Egypt. He struck something underground. Moments later, he unearthed a sealed earthenware jar six feet high, and inside were 13 ancient codices bound in tooled gazelle leather. The collection included an astonishing number of ancient Christian gospels and other writing, including dialogues, conversations, and visions attributed to Jesus and his disciples. One of the books were salvaged. One of these was the Gospel of Thomas, which dates to circa 50 CE. The books apparently were salvaged from the library of the earliest Christian monastery in Egypt after the Archbishop of Alexandria ordered the monks to destroy all books he deemed heretical, that is, Christian sources not endorsed by the clerical authorities. By investigating these long hidden sources, we discovered that the early Christian movement contained enormously more diversity of viewpoint and practice than most Christians ever imagined. One need only to listen to the words of Gospel of Thomas to hear how it resonates with Buddhist tradition. Thomas the twin wrote, Jesus said, if those who lead you say to you, look, the kingdom is in the sky, then the birds of the sky will get there first. If they say it is in the sea, then the fish will get there first. Rather, the kingdom is inside of you, and it is outside of you. When you come to know yourselves, then you will become known, and you will realize that it is you who are the children of the living Father. But if you will not know yourselves, then you dwell in poverty, and it is you who are that poverty. Um, so some of you are probably asking, what is this white middle-aged woman from the lily-white Long Island suburbs with an Ivy League education doing up here uh, during focus month on the legacy of Martin and Malcolm. Well, Charlie suggested it, and for those of you who don't know Charlie, you don't say no to Charlie. Um, some of you are asking a slightly different question, and that also begins the same way. What's a nice middle-aged white woman doing up here talking about computer science and religion? Well, I've been a computer scientist for 25 years. I've been an educator for some 40 years. Since my eighth grade social studies teacher, do the math, um, Mrs. Salatan handed me Charles Silberman's Crisis in a Classroom. And she said, if you are so bored in my class, read this. And then let's discuss how we can improve what happens in schools. That same year, I was confirmed into the Lutheran Church and then immediately left it. Because Mrs. Salatan has taught me to question everything, I'm still at it. I questioned Charlie, challenging him to stand up, uh, stand on the increasing orthodoxy of American education. And somehow I ended up here today. The title of this sermon is rather provocative. 
A less provocative one would be, let us open our minds to learn what is true. I ask you to consider the following assertion. We have abdicated responsibility for what children know and believe to an elite that increasingly tells us what is the right answer, when in fact right answers don't exist. I challenge you to rebut my claim that our children are subjected to the kind of judgment day when they are asked to produce those expected right answers. Their judge is not a humane and benevolent teacher sage who knows them well and loves them for who they are. It is a monolithic, mechanical system powered by commercial entities that capriciously determines who among our children is proficient in their thinking and beliefs and who is not. As a computer scientist who finds true joy in making computers do my bidding, I'm one of the few people who can actually do that, I know that technology is neutral. My mentor, Professor Harold Abelson at MIT, and his co-authors stress in their new book, Blown to Bits, that computers does nothing but manipulate bits. A bit, if you aren't aware, is an idea that captures the, the, captures the, the notion of true or false on or off, zero or one. In the machine, however, it occurs physically by a cutoff between a high and a low signal. It is important to know that there is a cutoff point. The idea of cutoff will return later. Data, whether a bank statement, a text message, a drawing of a beautiful child, or a video of a sunrise, is simply a sequence of bits. The process that does the manipulation is an algorithm, and that process, when executed on a computer, tolerates no ambiguity. Artificial intelligence, which I studied as a graduate student, is simply algorithms on steroids with some probability thrown in. Artificial intelligence is a best guess at an answer. Algorithms are neutral. It is how we use them and how they, their use is encouraged that produces joy or suffering, good or evil, in the context of the legacy of Martin and Malcolm that Charlie has been presenting over the last two weeks. We use them, we use algorithms to fulfill dreams like Martin and to identify nightmares and create nightmares, as Malcolm spoke about. Teaching computer science is hard because you must convince mushy, impatient young people to think precisely. But it is harder to get them to think responsibly and realize that they can create nightmares as well as fulfill dreams. It is harder still to convince them to push beyond designing the solution that was convenient for them and one that truly reaches for the innovative solution that addresses real human needs. Within the last five years, a technology that was convenient for programmers almost a century ago in the 1920s and 30s has come to impact how and what children in the United States learn to know and believe. The technology behind standardized testing is increasingly used to determine student proficiency and academic progress. Yet there is decades of solid evidence that those deemed proficient by these measures go to college, and those who fall below that arbitrary cutoff most likely go to jail. No longer would Malcolm X be judged by a racist teacher, as Charlie described in the previous couple of weeks, but instead by a disembodied algorithm. Malcolm X chose not to stand up to his teacher, but instead checked out of school and ended in jail. Students today and their teachers who advocate for them cannot choose to stand up to the algorithms because there is no way to refute them. It is more worrisome 
that there has been evidence since the, the early 1960s that Martin Luther King's, both father and son, of this world can't stand up to the algorithms either. The very nature of assessment process rewards the mundane thinker and punishes the extraordinary one. The legacy of Martin and Malcolm is to stand up to the powerful, to assert that you are competent, capable, and worthy of the dream. To stand up requires the ability to engage in discourse, to question, to seek answers. By making assessment entirely mechanical, we have eliminated the ability for students and their teachers to stand up to their judges and question whether the expected answer is true. It is worth stopping for a moment and considering Unitarian Universalism and the communication that we engage in. Think about what happens in a UU worship service, in meetings and circles, at coffee hour, in phone conversations, texts, and emails. This morning we didn't quite get it right. It's okay. It wasn't perfect. We discourse. We don't simply accept what is being said. We engage in dialogue. We try to tease out the truth. It is not about who is right or wrong, but about opening our minds to learn what is true. And of course, it takes our eyes and our hearts as well. In the best instances, we create consensus. In the worst, we agree to disagree. Each of us comes away from any interaction with a unique experience and understanding. We do not judge each other's understanding. So why do we let a machine judge what our children have learned? A machine-scored assessment, a multiple-choice test, does not have the capacity to gain insight into the knowledge and beliefs of a student. Instead, as Charlie pointed out to me in our conversation last week, it promotes orthodoxy. That is an uncomfortable word for you use. Charlie wrote a haiku for us, on the spot, awesome. This is what he wrote. Orthodoxy says rules are the path to follow. Truth is its own path. I scribbled. An algorithm is a set of rules that move your inferences forward, geeky. It is a very, very rigid path to follow. It is the epitome of orthodoxy. Thank you, Charlie. I understand algorithms a bit better. An algorithm cannot, by its very nature, engage in discourse. But to judge what someone knows and believes requires the ability to engage them in discourse. To get closer to the truth about what they know and believe requires far more sophistication than can be found in mechanical test scoring, which is one of the oldest and simplest algorithms out there. Yet mechanical test scoring is essential to the Common Core State Standards Initiative, which is purported to change, revolutionize, and fix our education system. So why? Why do we need mechanical testing? Because of the inherent orthodoxy of the Common Core. In my conversation with Charlie, he pointed out that orthodoxy emerges when there is an attempt to re relive or reestablish an essential enlightenment one that you care passionately about. This makes perfect sense from the Common Core Standards Movement. Here is their mission statement. You can Google it. The Common Core State Standards provide a consistent, clear understanding of what students are expected to learn so teachers and parents know what they need to do to help them. The standards are designed to be robust and relevant in the real world, reflecting the knowledge and skills that our young people need for success in college and careers. 
With American students fully prepared for the future, our communities will be best positioned to compete successfully in the global community, the global eco economy. I had to slip the community, and they say economy. Their goal is laudable, to provide the same school experience to all children in the United States. No child left behind. Every child in every grade is expected to reach a level of proficiency in knowledge and belief in mathematics English and English language arts. Every state can require each publicly funded school to be held accountable to these standards. Every child will have the kind of privilege of education that Martin Luther King had. No child will be discouraged and develop the self-loathing that befell Malcolm X as a young adult. Laudable. But there is a rub. How do you hold schools accountable? Think about how negative that statement is. Who holds you accountable to your beliefs as a UU? And for those of you who are visiting, who holds you accountable for not believing what we believe? To put it differently, how can you ensure that standards are being met? Well, the answer is we assess. We have the tools and straightforward algorithms that conveniently implement statistical methods. They let us efficiently and quantitatively determine whether students know what we want them to know. There is a seductive logic that standardized tests will clear out the human prejudice and provide quantitative, unbiased measures of student achievement. But here is the rub. Standardized exams with mechanical grading through bubble tests were originally used in the US during World War I to predict successful placements for recruits. They were never meant to evaluate whether standards have been met. The bubble sheets were designed for the convenience of the testers. The focus of the technology was on making it efficient to test people and anal analyze where they belonged back in the early part of the 20th century. Well, so what? Anyone who went to school in the last 40 years has been subjected to these tests, at least in the US. It is a rite of passage. But the dirty little secret is that there were a variety of tests administered by different states, and the quality of those tests differed significantly, hence the Common Core movement. But what was consistent across tests was that the scores of students differed based on socioeconomic status and geographic location. As a result, for almost half a century, kids like Malcolm X from an early age were informed that they were not proficient, not because of the explicit racism of a teacher that can be addressed, okay, that they could refute if they chose to do so. Instead, for the last 40 years, those deemed inadequate have had no means to refute the judgment of their competence because the judge is a reliable, quantitatively unbiased, established system. In 1962, Banish Hoffman, a biographer of Albert Einstein and a physicist in his own right, published an insightful little book called The Tyranny of Testing, in which he uses formal logic to establish three things about machine-scored multiple-choice exams. He wrote, but the cru crucial question is with us still. This was in 1962. The crucial question is still with us. What sense is there in giving tests in which the candidate just picks answers and is not allowed to give reasons for his choices? 
He shows that multiple choice machine graded exams whose correct answer cannot be refuted have the following deficiencies. He proves this logically. Questions are sometimes badly worded and sometimes intentionally written to trip you up. We all know that. The expected answer is sometimes just wrong. That if you have deeper knowledge or come from a different cultural perspective, the right answer isn't right anymore. Yes, even in math. I can argue that in some worlds, 9 plus 1 does not equal 10, it equals A. Ask me at coffee hour, but I digress. Where does this put the student whose proficiency is being judged? Hoffman and many others since, including most recently and surprisingly Diane Ravitch, claim that the right answer questions penalize the more intellectually deep, insightful questioning students because the mediocre student will not think hard about the right answer. The mediocre student will often guess and typically has better than, a better than 20% probability of guessing right. The questioning student will see complexity in the question that the questioner didn't anticipate. The insightful student will realize that the questioner's perspective comes into it and will play the game of second-guessing the questioner, trying to think like the questioner. The intellectually deep student will know how superficial the question is and either get tripped up by their superior knowledge and analysis or become true masters of playing the guessing game. You might think that after a half century since the publication of Tyranny of Testing, that effort has gone into creating better testing mechanisms to create assessment methodologies that have overcome these proven deficiencies. Instead, effort has gone into keeping students and teachers from cheating, making the simple act of discourse to find out what is true into a high-stress event. Huge efforts have gone into protecting the test questions from being discussed and the right answers questioned. Instead, we have a commercial industry, once called test prep, now called study skills, that coaches kids not to become seekers of truth, but in the art of taking bubble sheet minute multiple choice exams. And teachers? They are told not to teach to the test, but are increasingly given curriculum in a box that is guaranteed to prepare students with minimal teacher expertise or the district's money back. You might think the, te the testing industry has put effort into creating more reliable questions. You would think this means truly vetting the questions, but instead it has come to mean finding tactical means of determining that the questions work. Here is where the industry today the answer deemed correct is not the answer that a group of experts have agreed is correct. You couldn't get a group of experts like that together to agree. The answer that is scored as correct is the answer chosen by students who were predicted to be successful at what is being tested. Let me say that again for those of you who lost focus. The answer that is scored as correct is the answer chosen by students who were predicted to be successful at what is being test, tested. Let that sit there for a minute. If you are still not buying into this, if you see this as a necessary evil at worst and at best, as the only non-prejudicial way to fairly assess students, then think about this, given the reading we did. What if some of those questions involved whether Jesus was or wasn't the only begotten Son of God? What if answering that question truthfully put you or your child on the wrong side of proficient? 
One question answer can make the difference. If you read the Bible, you have one answer, but if you have read any of Elaine Pagel's work, you have another. And truthfully, if you can read Elaine Pagel, you are proficient in English language arts. I love her, but I, it's hard. And if you have studied Thich Nhat Hanh, who, whose book is about Jesus and, and, the, and, and Buddhism, you cannot in all honesty give the expected answer to the question. For that matter, if you truly understand uni universalism, you can't answer that question either. So we're somewhere we became the boiling frog. We take for granted that testing is the legitimate conclusion of a long chain of inferences that start with creating real equity in education. But the logic breaks down when you realize that students, parents, teachers, school administrators, school boards, and even the state legislators cannot engage in discourse about whether students have learned what they are expected to learn because we cannot refute the expected right answers, or the curriculum, or the standards, or the credentials, credentials of those who made the tests, curricula, and standards. But most of all, we have no control over the cutoff between proficient and not. Computers estimate reality with zeros and ones. But in life, there really are no cutoff points. Two people won one of the, the, the ski events at the Olympics today. There was no difference between them. But all, most of all, we have no control over the cutoff between proficient and not. We cannot distinguish between the Martins and the Malcolms. Instead of following the UU principle to promote a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, we are allowing our public education system to become an orthodoxy that we blindly follow. A free and responsible search for truth and meaning. Do you think these wonderful artists this morning learned their craft through multiple choice tests? Mechanical testing and the increasing emphasis on computer algorithms to quantitatively determine what you and your children know and don't know directly thwarts that free and responsible search. Reconsider the two civil rights giants that were the focus of this month. One was raised to believe that he could accomplish anything through peaceful means. The other was empowered when he realized his self-loathing was the product of misplaced assessment by others. Malcolm X committed his life to end suffering. Martin Luther King Jr. committed his life to fulfill a dream. Neither had the right answer. Their legacy is that both stood up to those in power who would tell them what to think and believe. Both questioned the assumptions of that power and used their intellects and their spiritual compass to encourage all of us to commit, to open our minds, to learn what is true. This was a privilege and an honor. Thank you. I've learned and I've grown. Our closing words are from W.E.B. Du Bois. And I learned from my good friend Kim Person, who was the, one of the first African-American women to graduate from Princeton, that it's not Dubois, it's 
Du Bois. Now is the accepted time, not tomorrow, not some more convenient season. It is today that our best work can be done and not some future day or future year. It is today that we fit ourselves for the greater usefulness of tomorrow. Today is the seed time. Now are the hours of the work, and tomorrow comes the harvest and the playtime. May the prayers of our hearts and the songs on our lips shared in this hour, holy hour of worship be with us now and in all the days to come. As we extinguish our chalice, our worship has ended. Let our service begin. <laughs>